0: There are famous statements uh, in history that call us to remember things. Uh, My favorite amongst them as a Texan is, you might be able to guess, remember the, you guys, you Californians, you don't even know. You don't even know. Remember the Alamo. Come on. Remember the Alamo, right? In fact, you've got a city here called Santa Ana that makes this hair on the back of my neck stand up as a Texan. Because Santa Ana was the general that led to the slaughter of the, the Texans in the Alamo, but then the, the call of remember the Alamo and the Battle of Goliad and Texas came back and flexed like we always do, right? So uh, remember the Alamo. There's others though. How about remember, remember the 5th of November, well, maybe a little bit less familiar. That's Guy Fawkes Day, and I would explain it to you if I understood more about it, but I don't, but uh, maybe you've heard of that statement. How about uh, this one's not a call to remember, but be on guard. Uh, there was a statement made in one of Shakespeare's plays, Beware the Ides of March, uh, to be alert, to be on guard, uh, Julius Caesar. And then, of course, there's one that we celebrate every year, and it's not a, a statement that says remember this, it's actually put in the negative. It says never forget. And that's on September 11th every year as we remember the lives lost in the attack on the Twin Towers in the Pentagon. Well, tonight, I'm going to call on you to remember something. Maybe not on par with these things as far as national level, worldwide level, but I would argue more important than any of those things. Certainly more important to our spiritual well-being than any of those things. As we study this next section of Hebrews, I believe our author was issuing a call on his readers and issuing a call on us to remember the ugliness of sin. And we must set ourselves to remember this because Satan is at work in our lives to do everything within his power to get us to forget about, to minimize, to trivialize the ugliness of sin. One Puritan pastor named Thomas Brooks put it this way, he said, Satan's devices are to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of the sin. See, our passage tonight is going to pull the curtain back on the schemes and devices of the enemy, on the schemes and devices of Satan and his demons, and it's going to call on us to remember the ugliness of sin in order that we might all the more set ourselves against it as we align ourselves more and more and more and more and more with Jesus. This is not a a message that I've been looking forward to preaching this week. There are some that I can't wait to get to the pulpit and open up the word with y'all. This is a tough one. We're on the subject of sin and God's perspective on sin. It is, is not any preacher's favorite topic to preach. It's necessary. But the second reason is, is the risk to you in this room is high tonight. And the risk to you in this room is high no matter which side of the equation that I'm about to describe that you fall on. See, in a room this size, and and I don't know all of you, and and I know some of you better than others, and others less than others, and and, uh, if that wasn't confusing enough, well, then there you go. But in a room like this, I'm I'm not pretending that everybody in the room is a Christian. And so there's a risk tonight to you if you're here tonight, and maybe you are self-deceived into thinking that you are a follower of Jesus. But really what you've decided to follow is a cultural trend. Uh, Your family has long brought you to church. You've grown up going to church. It's always been the thing that you've done, and now you're in college, and so you're doing it again. Or maybe you're here tonight because at some point in time, you walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, you raised your hand when the preacher said, bow your head and close your eyes. And if anybody wants to be, uh, invite Jesus into their heart, raise their hand. But really, there's been no transformation, no change, no no redirection of your life since that time. The risk to you tonight is that you're going to tune this out and think, well, that's not me. The other side of the risk is for you in the room tonight who are Christians. You truly have submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and put your faith and trust in him. You've repented from your sins and and you are in the heat of a battle against sin. And you're going to hear this message tonight and potentially grow discouraged or allow doubt to creep in. And and let me just tell you, let me warn you that the enemy is going to be active tonight as this text is being preached in your life wanting you to begin to doubt, to question to feel insecurity. And so let me say at the outset, if you are in Christ, as we've said so often before in this series, and hopefully you've been here for chapter nine and chapter 10, uh, the the preceding messages where we've talked about Jesus' sacrifice once and for all, that his sacrifice has paid the penalty for your sins, past, present, and future. So Christian, I want you to remember that tonight and keep that at the forefront of your minds. If you are in Christ, this is not a message to cause you to doubt, but here's the thing, with this sermon tonight, the goal is really twofold, and and, and it's something that you've heard before, but I want to drive it home with what we're doing specifically tonight. Is That is number one. I want to afflict those that are comfortable in their sin. But then I also want to comfort those that are afflicted by their sin. So it's a, a thin line that I walk in the pulpit tonight, and I feel the weight of that. As we start in the text. Let's actually look back at verses 24 and 25, which we finished up with last week, which says this, let us consider how to stir one another up. Remember being sanctified irritants. How to stir one another up, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We talked about last week, loving on, actively loving on your church fam, right? That we need each other. And all the more as we see the day drawing near, the the, the day is the day of judgment. When when there's no more time, there's no more second chances, there's there's no more opportunities to hear the gospel anymore. There's no more opportunities to repent anymore, that, that this is it. the the last seat on the bus has been filled. Here comes Christ for his bride, the church, and and now the church is gone, and now the unbelievers are left behind, right? We need one another to be involved, to stir one another up to love and good works, so that we will endure, so that we will hold fast to the confession of our hope, so that we will press on, and we will not be those that are among the self-deceived, because the day is coming, and that leads to where we go now in verse 26 and 27. The author says, for if we go on sinning, man, we need each other to make sure that we don't do this. I just want Set the context for us that this is flowing out of the context of a focus on our need for one another in the local church. And he's saying, Because look, here's the, the danger. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What does this mean to go on sinning deliberately? We need to deal with that. We need to unpack that, explain that a little bit. But if you just go to the outcome in verse 27, the outcome, notice, is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. Okay, so if we look at verse 27, verse 27, it helps us to understand what's going on in verse 26 by continuing to sin deliberately. Okay, this is not a believer struggling with sin, this is an unbeliever comfortable with sin in his life. Okay, this is somebody that that is not battling sin. And we know that this is an unbeliever because the result is they suffer the fury of God's fire that consumes his adversaries. Uh, that does not describe a Christian. This is talking about somebody who is not a believer, not a Christian. And so maybe we can begin with a little bit more of what this is not. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says that if anyone is caught in a trespass, in a transgression, the implication there is that this is not just a one and done thing, but this is even a, a recurring thing. If anyone is caught, In a repeated ongoing transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be be tempted. This is not that, okay? This is not a believer who falls prey to sin and needs their brother or sister in Christ to come alongside them and to call them back to uh, repentance and confession of that sin. Okay, this is not a believer who's struggling with sin or battling. I, I prefer the word battling that's struggling because we can say struggling when we're just getting run over by our sin. No, we need to be battling, fighting our sin. This is not that, okay? This is not a, a, a one-and-done threat. In other words, let me ask it a different way or phrase it a different way by asking a question. Who is there in this room who has never sinned deliberately? I'm glad none of the hands went up. You'll notice neither did mine, right? None of us can say that we have never willfully, intentionally, voluntarily sinned. And if you think you have, go ask your mama. She'll tell you different. How many of you in the room have maybe willfully, intentionally, voluntarily sinned, not just one time, but multiple times? Yeah, with the same sin, okay? So if that's the case, and we're dealing with this as a Christian here, none of y'all are saved, myself included. So let me just repeat, we're not talking about a believer battling sin, okay? And this is where I'm walking that fine line, because if you're out there and you're getting owned by your sin, that's not battling. I'm not talking to you. If you're out there getting owned by your sin and you're comfortable with it, right? You're at ease with it. Man, I I want you to start squirming in your seat tonight. I don't want you to start squirming in your seat tonight. I mean, I do, but, but more importantly, God's word wants you to start squirming in your seat tonight. It's part of the afflicting the comfortable, those comfortable in their sin. See, this is not about sinning your way out of a relationship with Jesus. You cannot do that. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance, okay? Peter says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded by whose power? Your power through faith? Uh Uh-uh, God's power through faith. So what keeps you saved? Who keeps you saved? God does, Okay you're not going to sin your way out of the love of, of, of Jesus. It's impossible if you are in Christ. no, you know, this is about being self-deceived. Or maybe you're not even self-deceived. Maybe you're just playing a game. Maybe you're here tonight for whatever reason because a friend brought you and you're like, hey, free dinner. Or maybe you're here tonight because you've got your eye on somebody in the room going, hey, they're, they're pretty cute. Maybe I will ask them out on that adventure day. Whatever your motives are, you're not here because you love Jesus, right? If that's you, that's who the author's talking to, warning you. See, so yeah, what we need to remember is, is sin put Christ on the cross. Your sin and my sin did that. And to willfully, without battling, without regret, without repentance, engage in ongoing sin is to debase and degrade what Jesus Christ has done for you. me. That's why it's so important for all of us to keep a vigilant watch on our lives. That's why this flows out of the context of, hey, we need each other to be stirring each other up towards love and good works. Because we need each other watching our six. We need each other caring about how we're doing spiritually, how we're doing with our walks with Jesus to make sure that none of us are this person who he's talking to. But y'all, as let me just talk to you as an individual, you need to make sure that you are not giving any safe haven to sin in your life, no quarter to sin in your life, taking no opportunity for sin to surrender and giving it a, a, a place to have a safe space in your life. There is no safe space for sin in your life. Nowhere. There can't be. Our first point tonight is along those lines. I want you to fear getting comfortable with sin. And I debated on that first word, fear, going, ah, I, is that the right tone? Is that what I'm trying to convey? Yes, it, it, at the end of the day, it, it really is. I chose that word carefully. I don't want you to fear losing your salvation, Christian, but I do want you to fear that you would ever grow comfortable with something that's sinful in your life. And that can be a, a big sin, that can be a little sin. I'm not just talking about the, the, the big ticket items here, I'm talking about the smaller ones too that you would grow comfortable lying or deceiving, right? That you would grow comfortable with with profane speech coming out of your mouth. We cannot give quarter to sin. Again, let's talk about the nature of the sin that we're talking about that's being warned against here. It's persistent or ongoing, that's what he says when he says if, if you are continuing in sin, if we go on sinning deliberately, it's a present act of it. it, it it's, it's still happening. It's not stopping. You are repeating the sin over and over and over again. That, that's part of the nature of the sin. It's willful. It's intentional. That's that word deliberate there. You're not just going, I don't know what happened. I just accidentally slept with my girlfriend. That's impossible. And it's also, notice here, post Post-gospel if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Y'all, Hebrews chapter 6, which we preached on a month or so ago, maybe a little bit more than that, about, look, if, if, if we fall away once we're that close, it's impossible to restore that person to a spirit of repentance. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, what we're studying tonight, parallels that. This is a warning saying, look, there are those that are in danger of forfeiting any shot at ever being saved. And this is that type of person. You've heard the good news of the gospel and you are resisting and you are continuing to engage in sin willfully and intentionally and deliberately. Notice in the passage there's no mention of fighting sin, no mention of conviction of the soul, no mention of hatred for this sin, no mention of a desire to be free from this sin or of persistent prayer of confession and repentance. That, that's nowhere in this passage. The Christian's natural in, in, well, not natural, spirit-imbued response to sin, which are all of those things, to fight it, to hate it, to loathe it, to wanna to be free from it, to, to, re, to confess and to repent, all of those things, none of that's here, because what, what are we dealing with here? We're not dealing with somebody who's a believer, somebody who's regenerate. We're dealing with somebody who's still dead in their trespasses and sins. They're comfortable with their sin. This is someone who's comfortable living with that sin, rationalizing that sin, defending that sin, and repeating that sin without the weight of guilt and conviction of God's Spirit. He's heard of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness in Christ, and yet he's unmoved from his pursuit of pleasure, unfazed by his bold faced hypocrisy. Let's dive in a little bit more to what this is. If you're saying, Is this me? Am I who he's talking about? Well, I want you to ask yourself about your sin and whether this defi- defines it. This person who's sinning shows no remorse, no sorrow over this sin. There's also, along those lines, no guilt or shame associated with this. There's no hatred of the sin, and to borrow from Jesus' own analogy, there's no cutting off the hand from the the Sermon on the Mount where he says, look, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to enter into paradise without one hand than for you to go into hell with both hands. Again, that radical perspective in, in view of the threat of sin, there's none of that here. And so you are, uh, on the flip side, you are comfortable with this sin. You, you, you it just naturally, and that's the word here, right? It, it, you just engage in it naturally without thinking about it, or sometimes with thinking about it, as we'll see here in a minute. But you have no desire or plans to stop or fight or battle it. Instead, what is there? If there's none of those things, what is there? Well, there, there's rationalization. One of the first stops of rationalization is comparison. You begin to look horizontally rather than vertically to compare the to, to view your sin through how bad somebody else's sin is, rather than through how holy God is. With rationalization comes justification, why it's okay that you're doing what you're doing, and oftentimes that comes with bad mouthing, tearing down, or making fun of Christians who have potentially confronted you in the past over this sin throwing words and labels around like well they're just a bunch of legalists oh well you're just holier than thou aren't you you think you're better than everybody which is just a a shallow facade that you're throwing up to not have to do the hard work of dealing with the sin that is present in your life there's also vain promises to change next time It'll be different next time. But instead of changing, there's actually times where you're planning to engage in that sin again. Scheming, thinking about, how can I get back to that, that sin again? And there's also a willingness to sacrifice for that sin. Money, time, relationships. Whatever it takes To to get that fix again. Y'all, if the last two slides are describing where you're at tonight, then I want you to be considering whether you truly understand what it is to be in Christ. Because if that describes where you're at tonight, y'all, it's hard to say that the Spirit is dwelling within you. Because the Spirit within us has a sanctifying presence in our lives. Causes us to want to be, desire to be, and actually be more like Jesus. The spirit within us is is not okay sharing his space with sin. But again, just to reiterate for us, okay, what is this then? What is it not? This is not a single sin, okay? Okay. you're out there going, man, I sinned this week. I went 48 in a 45. He's talking to me. I'm gonna go to hell. Well, maybe you are, but not because of that. This is not one sin that is putting you outside of Christ. You can't get outside of Christ if you are inside Christ. Faith and repentance put you in Christ. Second, this is not a, a sin that you are actively battling. Where you are being transparent with a brother or sister in Christ and saying, Look, hey, hey, can you pray for me? I'm fighting this. I'm battling this. Where you are asking for accountability, where you are praying and confessing to the Lord and saying, Lord, please forgive me. This is not that. This is also not a, a sin that maybe you thought you had in check that all of a sudden rears its ugly head again. And maybe you fall prey to it when you thought you had victory over it. This is not that. The sin in view here is unaccompanied by the conviction of the Spirit. There is nothing like what David says in Psalm 32. When David says about his sin, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, God, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. David's describing the weight of conviction, the weight of guilt when he had not confessed his sin, right? There is none of that with this person in Hebrews chapter 10. Instead, there's a comfort level with their sin. And notice again in verse 27, the strong language here, but what remains for them then? If there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, they can't pretend that that Jesus' death on the cross has done them any good. Because as we'll see later, they're despising the cross with this. So then what remains, if not the sacrifice for sins that we've been talking about in chapter 9 and chapter 10 so far, what remains? Well, look at verse 27. But instead, a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In the Old Testament, there were two types of sin that were defined in the law. There was the unintentional sin. This is Numbers 15, 24. This is a a sin that, that is, is not the, the willful, deliberate sin that we're talking about here, right? And then there was the deliberate sin. So there was the unintentional and intentional sin. What we're talking about here is that intentional, willful, ongoing, deliberate sin where you just don't care. You don't care. You don't care what the Bible says. You don't care what the Lord says. You don't care what your leader says. You don't care what your friends say. You're going to keep going in this sin. And the writer says, Beware there no longer exists a sacrifice for sins. In fact, look at the word he uses there. Instead, what can you expect? You can expect the fury of fire that's reserved for who? For God's adversaries. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, You, if this is you, then you are God's enemy tonight, you're his adversary tonight. Isaiah 26, 11 says this. It says, oh, Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see the zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Isaiah, the prophet is talking about the enemies of God here, saying, God, consume them with your fire. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, if this is you, if you're sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there's a fearful expectation of what is awaiting the adversaries of God. In other words, you are outside of Christ. Genesis 19, 24, speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Again, fire from God coming out of heaven. This sinning betrays a soul not reconciled by the blood of Jesus and who may never again have that opportunity. And that's the seriousness that's the warning. And look, guys, as as, as harsh as this is and as hard as this is to hear, and some of you guys are probably like, man, a a message on judgment and sin, could it be more stereotypical of the church? Well, here's the deal, y'all. This is loving, okay? And look, as a dad, I love my kids, so I tell my kids, hey, don't, like we were watching Joshua try to get a hot pan of chicken out of the oven when we came here tonight, because he was left at home as the oldest one to to help take care of his, his siblings. And he was like, He thought he was going to die. Like, he thought this was the end, just to try to get this hot. And we're like, okay, be careful. Put the mitts on. Grab the tongs. Reach in. Now, just one by one. Eventually, it just got to the, like, just grab the chicken and throw it on top of the stove. Like, don't even try to hit the plate or the pan. Just get it out of the oven at this point, right? But we're not going to tell him, yeah, just go ahead and reach your hands in there and grab the pan and pull it out and throw it on. Why? Because we care about our son. We love him. So we're going to say, hey, be careful. This is hot. You could really get hurt if you don't do this correctly. Okay, y'all, this is me saying that to you, but more importantly, this is God saying that to you. This is born out of a love for you. It's a loving thing for God to issue this warning rather than just to turn you over and not warn you at all. But the danger exists that if this is you tonight and you're feeling like this is me tonight, then hey, we need to do business with God tonight and the good news is you can because Jesus has died on the cross for your sins, for the sins that I'm talking about tonight. These ongoing willful sins, he has paid the penalty for you so that you can be forgiven. So talk to me, talk to your leader, talk to a friend tonight. Heed the warning. I was thinking about this from a Christian perspective, though, because Christians, we have something to, to, to listen to and, and be careful with here, and that is got to be guarding our lives to make sure that we are not giving safe haven to sin in our lives. I, I looked up and, and thinking about this, the world's most dangerous pets yeah, I think you're going to be surprised, at least by one of them. I was shocked by one of them. Shocked, I tell you. What are the world's most dangerous? Number eight is a tiger. <laughs> number eight. And here's the only justification for this. Not many people have tigers, right? Especially after the whole Netflix debacle and all that thing. <laughs> so the tiger probably is, is he's, 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 if this was based on percentage of people that are killed by their pet tiger, I think tiger's are up near number one but like number of kills overall tiger's pretty low on it number 8 in the top 8 okay number 7 is the wolf dog um, some of y'all have seen them that we saw one at the beach when we had a bonfire down there one of the, the nights we were walking by and there was it was a wolf dog well wolf dogs kill people so they're not good pets to have uh, number 6 is primates monkeys i read a story about a, a guy who had a uh, a monkey from the time that he this monkey was 3 months old and 15 years later, the monkey turned on him and, like, ripped his leg to shreds. Right. Don't get monkeys. They can just admire them through the fence at the, the zoo. They're dangerous pets. Bears. Duh. Right? Like, I think I want a grizzly bear. I think that'd be really cool to have for a day before he kills you. Um, here's the one. Owls. Harry Potter's got no like this is horrible advice. Like, forget magic and wands. They're, they're hanging out with birds, the like owls that do damage to people. Their talons and their beaks apparently cause and inflict severe damage, more so than the tigers. I, who would have thought? Owls. So remember that next time you watch that devilish show, Harry Potter. No, I'm just kidding on that. <laughs> Number three is lions, which the tiger's gotta be going, wait, 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 wait a minute. Lions and tigers and bears, all three of us are put together. Shouldn't we all three be? But lions are number three. Yeah, don't get lions. Uh, alligators and crocodiles. Um, yeah, don't don't go Steve Irwin and be like, I'm going to get a, a croc. Um, that's not a good idea. And then number one on the list is reptiles. And again, I, I think this is based on the number of people that own these things versus not. And so there are yahoos, I'm sure there's a lot of them in Texas, because I grew up there, who were like, it'd be really cool to have a rattlesnake. I think I'm going to get a rattlesnake. And their friends are like, you shouldn't do that. And they're going, no, I'm going to do it anyways. And then they get bit and they die, right? Because that's what rattlesnakes do. They, they kill you. In fact, that's what, well, except for owls, that's what everything up there does. They all have the potential to kill you and none of us would sit here, I hope, and say, that's the type of pet that I want. I want, an, I, I, I want a, a tiger and a lion. In fact, I want a liger and a bear. I want them both in my house. No, we're not gonna say that. We're gonna look at that and say, that's, that's pretty foolish. Christian, are you hiding concealing, nurturing, sacrificing for a sin that it is just as dangerous to your spiritual life as any of those would be to your physical life. Proverbs 6, 27 through 28 says this, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In other words, if you are holding on to a sin thinking that you're gonna be okay, Christian, you're not gonna be okay, it is going to inflict damage in your life. It is gonna bring distance between you and God. It is gonna hurt your loved ones. It's going to to stunt your growth spiritually. It's going to harm your testimony about being a follower of Jesus Christ. You need to realize that and say, I want nothing to do with this. You need to fear getting comfortable with sin and remember its ugliness. That as the Lord told Cain, it is crouching at the door ready to overtake you at a moment's notice. Fear, getting comfortable with sin. Okay, that was the longest point for the night. So if you're wondering, wow, it's a record setting. Look at verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, he's now beginning to prove what his point is here, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? These are startling words that we're going to unpack here in just a minute, but even before we do, I imagine you understand the gravity of what he's talking about here. Our second point tonight is this, see your sin for what it is and what it deserves, See your sin for what it is and what it deserves, not just sin, in general, because that's safe for us. I want you to, to feel what your sin truly is according to God and what it deserves. Have you ever thought about a fishing lure? It's a weird question to ask, I know, especially if you don't fish. Probably not much. But if you thought about a fishing lure and what the intent of the fishing lure is, like the fishing lure is not there to say, hey, these hooks are pretty awesome. You should come check out the hooks. This hook is gonna be better than any hook you've ever been hooked with ever before in your entire life. So come have a bite of my hook. That's not what a fishing lure does. If you've been fishing that way, you're not catching any fish. A fishing lure does what? It conceals the hook. It deceives the prey. It says, there's no hooks here. Look at me, I'm just a shiny little thing bobbing around in the water. You should come have some. Fish swims up, hits the line, you set the hook, and you're eating dinner. See, the lure is there not to display the hook, but to conceal the hook. Y'all, the enemy in this world is there not to display the heinousness and the ugliness of sin, but to conceal it from us. The reference to the law of Moses in this passage when he says anyone who sets aside, which is a willing ignoring of the, the, the law, saying, I, I, yeah, I know what the law says. I, I don't care. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm going to do it anyways. I said anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It, it comes from Deuteronomy 17, 6, where we get that, and that's actually what the law was that for these high-handed sins, these intentional sins, which would have included things like adultery, murder, kidnapping, uh, cursing your parents, believe it or not, was up there in that list too, striking your parents, and breaking the Sabbath. Any of those things are witnessed by two or more people, and those charges are brought against that person. That person is executed on the spot. They die without mercy, okay? The point here is, even in the Old Covenant... Right, there was a fear, there was a gravity of sinning associated with it. But I want you to think about what he says next. How much worse punishment? Go back up right before that again. They die without mercy. They die. They, they, they're, they're, they were picking up rocks on the Sabbath and now they're just dead with the rocks on the Sabbath. Like, they're they're gone, they're dead. How much worse punishment? What? Than dying? Again, that's why I say these are, are startling words for us. Ask someone to imagine a fate worse than death, and they'd probably struggle to come up with anything tangible, especially outside the church. What's worse than dying? Look at what people have done with COVID over the last three years. There are family members that have not seen loved ones because they are that afraid of dying. They have isolated themselves and not been with their family for three years almost because they're afraid of death. Ask them what's worse than death. They're not gonna be able to answer you. How much worse punishment? What is worse than death? What's worse than death? The answer is eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Yeah. Why? Well, because look at the offense as he describes it here. This is the person who has not just set aside the law of Moses which, yes, was the law of God, but now that Christ has come and they've heard, remember, this is the one who goes on sinning after receiving knowledge of the truth, and they continue to sin. Look what they do. They've, They've trampled underfoot the Son of God. Back in Hebrews chapter six, when we talked about that passage, they talked about holding up to contempt, crucifying again Jesus, right? Despising his sacrifice, despising his offering, despising the cross, Matthew 7, 6 talks about uh, this idea of trampling underfoot. When Jesus says, don't give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's the the concept here, right? Or in Luke 8, 5, a sower went out to sow a seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air came and devoured it. In other words, a pig's gonna look at a pearl and go, yeah, I can't eat that, so so what? And, And just walk all over it in the muck, and the filth, and the mire of the pigsty. It's got no value to them. They treat it as, 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 as pointless, as valueless, as meaningless. And, and then you think about seed that's thrown on the, the path and the travelers that walk by the farmer's field, yeah, they may not stomp out in the cornfield, but if there's seed on the path, they're going to go, well, that missed its target, so whatever, I'm just going to walk over it. They're not even going to think about it, if, even if they notice that it's there. They're certainly not going to consider it valuable. Y'all, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, deliberately the way we talked about in point number one, that's what you're doing to Jesus. You're going, I don't care about him. I don't care about the cross. Don't commit me with that, pretending that I need that. I don't, I don't need that. And you're, you're trampling underfoot the Son of God. And then you're, you're profaning the blood of the covenant. To profane means to, to defile or dishonor or treat something as common. Remember the blood of the covenant? Remember the, the passage where it said, look, a covenant cannot be enacted without death. There must be blood. And we talked about in the Old Testament, the blood of the, the sacrificial offering that the high priest took in and sprinkled on the mercy seat on the day of atonement. And it had to be according to the, the plans. And that blood was treated as valuable, as precious. There's no way that they, they, they would have profaned that or defiled that blood. But y'all, that's what we do with the blood of Christ when we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth. And they've outraged the spirit of grace. Grace and outrage, those two things don't go together. It's an insulting arrogance is what he's talking about here. To God's free gift of sin being cleansed through the sacrificial death of Jesus. This is what causes God to say, there's a worse punishment stored up for them than just dying. Because they've trampled underfoot my son, they've profaned the blood of the covenant, and they've outraged the spirit of grace, right? Paul speaks of a guy named Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. You guys probably don't know any Demases in your life, and there's a reason for that. Because in 2 Timothy 4.10, it says, Demas, in love with this present world, he's deserted me. He's walked away. He's thought, you know what, this whole Christianity thing, it's not worth it because of everything that it costs me and everything that I have to give up and what I miss out on, and so I'm out. And Demas has walked away, right? The seed, the parable of the sower, to speak of that, right? This is the seed that's growing up, and the the thorns, the the cares of the world, choke the life out of this seed, and it dies off, and it doesn't bear any fruit. This is sin that somebody is, is comfortable with. This sin is a direct affront against God, and it is heinous. Remember the ugliness of sin and see it as the Bible here portrays it. Trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. Not just the blood, but Jesus himself. And so a couple questions that we need to answer tonight is this. Number one, do you view sin as the offense that scripture tells us that it is? And not just sin, your sin. As the offense that scripture has just laid out for us that when we sin and when we are okay and comfortable with it, man, it's like we are trampling underfoot the the Son of God. Do you view sin as the offense Scripture tells us it is? Second question is this, do you view the penalty for sin as Scripture defines it and describes it? How much worse punishment what is the wrath of God? Have you ever given thought to that? Most of y'all in this room are probably thinking, I try not to. It's not a fun topic. But y'all, it's one we need to understand. The wrath of God in Scripture are things, in the Bible, it's things like the sword, famine, plague, exile, humiliation, destruction. Right, those are our things that accompany the wrath of God, especially in the Old Testament. Revelation 14, 11 gives us a picture of the wrath of God. It says, the smoke of their torment, those that are in eternal judgment, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Okay, I'm gonna leave that on the screen. As I read, Thomas Watson describe the terrors of an eternity under the wrath of God. Thomas Watson, another Puritan writer, says this, O eternity, if all the body of the earth and sea were turned to sand, so get that image in your mind, the entirety of the earth and all of the oceans is now made up of sand, individual grains, And all the air up to the starry heaven were nothing but sand. So now it's all of the atmosphere as well is sand. And a single little bird should come every thousand years and fetch away in her bill, but the 10th part of a grain of all that heap, not even a single grain, the 10th part of a grain of all that heap once every thousand years. He says, what numberless years would be spent before the vast heap of sand would be fetched away? Yet, if at the end of all that time, the sinner might come out of hell, if if that was it, and you think, man, that would be an innumerable number of years, and still, it would be able to be done. That bird would be making progress bit by bit by bit towards the end, and eventually, it would be done. And he says, look, if at the end of all that time, the sinner could come out of hell, there would be some hope. But speaking of this verse, he says, but that word forever breaks the heart. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. That's why he says how much worse worse a punishment. John chapter 5, verse 29, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but John chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus says this, do not, verse 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of God, and, and they're going to come out. And notice, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to what? The resurrection of judgment. In other words, the lost are going to receive resurrected bodies, resurrected bodies prepared for eternal damnation in hell bodies that are uniquely designed by god to suffer and never die just as the 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 believer will receive a glorified body that will be prepared for eternity in the presence of god to enjoy the pleasures forevermore that he talks about in psalm 16 so will the damned receive a body prepared by god that will never die and always be dying Loneliness, anxiety, depression, fear, anger, lust, disappointment, humiliation, vulnerability, exhaustion, sleeplessness, rejection, isolation, despair, pain. All of these things will be felt for an eternity by a body that God has prepared to endure them all and yet never die. How much worse punishment? Again, perhaps you wonder how the God of this wrath can also be a God of love. The answer is because though all of us deserve this fate that I just described. Again, let me say that again. Though all of us, every single one of us in this room, deserve this fate that I just described, God has made a way through the cross for us to be forgiven. when you read as a Christian how much worse punishment, I want you to think of Christ on the cross and understand that he took that punishment. He did. For your sin and my sin. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We know him. Christian, we have a responsibility to know the Lord as fully as we can, as much as we can possibly hope to know him. And that includes his justice, his wrath, and his vengeance. That's part of who God is. It's part of his character. And so it says, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Deuteronomy 32, 35 is the the quotation there. Or if you prefer, Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is another place where he gives a, a, a statement that he is going to pay or exact payment, rather, on sin. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It actually might be better to read, the Lord will vindicate his people. The word can mean either, and it seems that the Old Testament testimony is that the Lord will vindicate his people, right? Psalm 135, 14. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that are going, I'm kind of tempted to, to be done with this whole Jesus thing and go back to the, the old thing of, of being a Jew in, in the temple sacrificial system. He's writing to people that are looking back over their shoulder, wanting to go back to all that, and he's saying, don't go back there. And he's saying, because the Lord will exact payment. He will get vengeance, and he will vindicate his people. And I, my guess is you want to be part of his people, yes? Well, that means being in Christ. See, that fearful judgment is absolutely a sure thing. That future judgment, rather, is absolutely a sure thing, which is why he says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if you are here tonight in Christ, you need not fear that. You need not fear that. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has absorbed the wrath of God for you entirely. And now you no longer need to fear falling into the hands of an angry God. I want you to think about what your response to that good news should be. Certainly shouldn't be getting comfortable with sin. But it should be our final point tonight, and that is this, be devoted to Jesus, your Savior. Be be devoted to him. Everything you are to Christ for what he has done for you. Leave nothing held back from Jesus. But devote it all to Christ your Savior. Uh, the Apostle Paul understood this. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He says this. He says, Whatever gain I had, I, I count it as loss for the sake of Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul was willing to say, take it all, give me Jesus. He was devoted to Jesus because he knew what was at stake. When Paul talks about, man, Christ came to save the sinners among whom I am the foremost. He's thinking about the wrath of God that Jesus exhausted for him on the cross and going, you can have everything. Give me Jesus. You want my titles of Pharisee? Take it. You want my money? Take it. You want to beat me, flog me, stone me, and throw me over the board in the middle of the ocean? Do it. You just can't have Jesus. Y'all, Jesus saved you from the certain wrath of God. So that you sit here tonight and read, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you are in Christ tonight, and again, I go back to that line that I'm walking. If you are in Christ tonight, you can read that and say, praise God, that will never be the experience that I have with God. I will never know him as the angry God but as my loving father. Yet if you are here tonight and you, through the entire first point, we're going, yep, that's me. That's me. I have sin in my life and I just don't care. Verse 31 is directed straight at you. And again, it's a warning tonight to you. And it's the love of God being issued tonight to you saying, leave off that sin, repent from that sin, trust Jesus for the forgiveness from your sin. But Jesus has delivered you, he's saved you, he's rescued you if you are in Christ from the wrath of God. Remember the ugliness of sin and rejoice over everything that Jesus has done to save you from it so that you can say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Can you say that tonight? And if you can, would your life bear it out? Do you love Jesus with how you are living right now because he died for you? Last week we talked about to stir one another up towards love and good works. The good is that beautiful lifestyle, right? Are you living beautifully in the eyes of God tonight? Contra to the ugliness of Sin. There's an old saying that goes like this, the one who falls never falls far. Puritan Thomas Brooks put it this way, sin is of an encroaching nature. It's of an encroaching nature. It creeps in on us. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, till it hath the soul to the very height of sin. Before we know it, we're caught in the trap The hook has been set. Look, maybe you're here tonight presently battling a sin you never thought you would succumb to. But you're battling. Maybe you're here tonight in the ditch of despair having recently discovered that the bait the enemy put out there for you is not what you saw it was. And you've been beset by the hook. Maybe you're here tonight And you've been that person who's deliberately, willfully, repeatedly, unflinchingly sinned without remorse or sorrow. But tonight, something in you has changed and you don't want to do that anymore. If any of that describes you, let me plead with you, urge you, beg you tonight to look to Jesus. Turn to Him with faith filled eyes. Repent from your sin tonight. Christian, repent from your sin and realize that you can put that sin off. That's Galatians or that's Romans chapter 6. To present your body no longer as an instrument for sin and unrighteousness, but now present it to him as an instrument of righteousness, right? Christ has set you free from that sin, so now, now that you can choose to, to do good and to pursue the Lord, if that's you tonight, Christian, and you've got sin in your life, let me just beg you, plead with you, excel still more, go to war, fight that sin, battle that sin, purge your life of that sin, do everything necessary, cut off the hand and throw it from you, Christian. Or if you're here tonight and you would say, I'm I'm not, I'm not a Christian and I've never been more convinced of it than right now in this moment, then let me plead with you even more strongly, make tonight the night that changes. Make tonight the night that changes. Trust Jesus tonight. I don't know how many of you guys have have jumped in. This is going to take a weird left turn real quick here, but did the game Wordle? Yeah. Yeah. You, you nerdles like me, you, you know what I'm talking about, but there's a stress level that comes with that game, right? Because you, you start out and you're like, okay, I've got six attempts to get this one five letter word. I got this. And you start, and then you start working down, you start working down. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, I've still got four attempts left. I'm, I'm good. And then you're like, oh man, I've only got three attempts left. And then you, like, I've got two attempts left, and you're going, this is a foreign word. There's no way. There's no word in the English language that's left here. I've exhausted all of the five-letter words, and there's no more. But you know how much time you've got left in Wordle. Y'all, you don't know how much time you've got left in in life. There's no countdown for you, which you get to see, okay, I've got this much, I've got this much, I've got this much, I've got this much. Okay, now I'm going to get serious about my relationship with Jesus. You don't get that. So let's do business with him tonight. Let's pray. God, I pray for anyone in this room that may be in that position, that they would take heed to those words tonight. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, we, we implore you, be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. And that is the call tonight, to be brought back to the the, the father, to be restored, to a, a right relationship, to be reconciled, to draw near to God through Jesus. And that's the only way that that's even possible. God, and I just pray that tonight that that would happen if it needs to happen. But for all of us, God, I just pray with such a heavy, weighty passage, and it is heavy, and it is a burden, and it's so much easier to preach the passages about your love and your goodness and the security that we have in jesus and all of those things are true it's all true we have to preach the fullness of your word we have to see the the fullness of your character and we have to take heed the the warnings that you give because you love us enough to warn us and so god i i pray that for the christians here tonight that we would read this passage and remember the ugliness of our sin and want even less to do with it than, than we already do. God, I, I pray that it would be sanctifying to us to think about the, the punishment, the wrath that Christ endured for us. When you say how much worse punishment, uh, that Jesus suffered that for us. It, we didn't just get a, get out of jail, free card, and, and, and that wrath went away. No, it was, it was felt by our Savior. He absorbed it for us on the cross because our sin had to be dealt with, had to be punished, had to be paid. And that's what Jesus did for us. So Lord, give us a greater distaste for this world and a greater desire and love and affection for Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who loves us enough to be straightforward with us and not to sugarcoat things. We thank you that you love us enough that you have revealed yourself to us in the word of God and you have not just left us to our own devices to try to figure this thing out because we would be so lost. We thank you that you've loved us so much that you put your son in between us and you and you exhausted, poured out, dumped your wrath against our sin on him so that we can be forgiven. And then when we read, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, we can say, that's never gonna be me because of Jesus. I'm gonna be in the arms of the Father instead. What an amazing reality we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.